0: One of my biggest theories is, is making practice fun. I want our guys to show up and enjoy practice, have it be one of the best parts of their days. And I would like to think that as they become coaches themselves or go on to bigger and better things, that they can add that part of our culture into what they do.
1: What's up and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner and thank you so much for joining us. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and Flightscope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. On today's show, I interview John Sheehan, head baseball coach at Millersville University in Millersville, Pennsylvania. John and I discuss the importance of coaches being humble and admitting when they don't know everything. We also go into some detail about different ways we can create an enjoyable practice environment to make players love coming every day. And we also talk about ways that we as coaches can do a better job of adjusting to each player's needs. Here is John Sheehan. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Great name, by the way. I mean, we we both share the <laughs> J-O-N. The, is your full name Jonathan, actually? Yes, sir. Yes, Yes, it is. yes. It's always good to meet a fellow Jonathan, and, and you know that, that that is the best name in the world. But we were talking off the mic, and a, a couple of years ago, you were on the K-Dub podcast, and, and I... Again, I'm a lifelong learner and, and I really, I loved what you were doing with your program. And, and for years, it has really stuck out in my mind as, as a guy that I followed on Twitter afterwards and seeing that you getting creative with your time constraints and uh, money constraints and, and different things like that. and And you have been a guy that I followed for a long time. And for our listeners who don't know you as well as I do, can you give us a short snapshot of why you decided to get into coaching? And then we'll dig right in on player development
0: sure I mean 13 years 13 years in as a head coach now and and I think it was maybe six or seven years ago that I was on K-Dub's podcast so that Mm -hmm. it's been a little while but uh things have certainly changed but there's a lot that's still the same but I feel like I was kind of put in this position not by choice in a lot of ways because I know there's a lot of guys out there that that uh want to be a head coach that I've been working really really hard and I feel like I've been pretty blessed to be Put into a head coaching position. I was interim for two, or I was interim for a year after working for a guy named Jeff Swore, who's actually coaching my alma mater now at Lampeter Strasburg High School, which is a a pretty good program in the Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania area. Mm -hmm. But um, Jeff hired me out of pro ball, and I was there for a year and a half as his assistant. And and long story short, is we had nine major violations from the guy before us that uh, we had to clean up. We didn't have a field on campus, and it was Jeff was in an extremely tough spot, and uh, he decided to back down after two seasons. And they gave me the interim position as a 25 year old. So I had no idea what I was doing. And looking back now, the creativity that you talk about—I mean, it, it was one of those things that you either sink or swim. And there's a lot of times where I'm looking up underwater, just sucking for air. But you learn to survive, and, and still here 13 years later. So. That's a that's the short end of it. We now have a beautiful field, and there's been just so much out of my control that's that's kind of fallen into place for us. That I look back and go, how how in the world do we get here? Some days, but it is good to be to be grateful for where I'm at, and and know that some guys will work their whole lives to be a head coach and and be at their alma mater. So I'm I'm really happy to be here and and continuing to coach here at Millersville.
1: I love that, and and I love getting to hear your progression as a coach. And so let's let's go back. You know, you're a 25 year old. You, you're you taking the reins of the program. And I I honestly, I, I can't imagine doing that. I, I thought that I was ready at 25 and now I'm at 30 and I'm still feel like, oh, man, what was I thinking five years ago that thinking that I could be the head coach of a program? And and not to say that you didn't do a fantastic job because I know that you did. But, you know, looking back, I'm like, man, I was, OK. Yeah. So we we definitely get wiser with age. But so you're 25 years old and you are taking the reins of a program, You know what did the vision look like for you? And you mentioned some different, again, you guys had some, some problems that you had to deal with immediately. So what were some of your first steps whenever you got the head coaching role and you're like, okay, these are the things that we're going to tackle first?
0: A lot of, I'll start with, with the vision. There are a lot of people on campus that thought I was completely nuts and a lot of people in the area too. And I think the I was naive and it was actually a blessing. That I was naive because when people said you can't turn that program around or you guys are never going to win there, which historically, I mean, we had been to the World Series in '98 shortly before I played here, but it, it was a it was a roller coaster ride from the '70s onward, and we hadn't really consistently won here. But so there's a lot of people that that didn't think that we would be successful, especially now with the 25 year old and no no head coaching experience. But one of the and we were talking with uh, one of our uh, retired development officers who has been just crucial for our program. She's raised a boatload of money for us and got her field named and helped us get turf a few years ago on her infield. She said the other day, you know, one of the things that drew her to our program was the 30-year plan that I put together. And as a 25-year-old, I just didn't see a 30-year plan come together. But again, I was just completely naive and said, you know, what if we had turf on our infield what if we had a clubhouse what if we put double cages in what if we were able to afford even back then some technology that would help the kids what if we were number one in the PSAC and scholarships and and then you know, asking those questions with vision first and not really knowing how to get there opened up some minds like hers who had experience in fundraising and uh, allowed us to dream a little bit now you look back 13 years later and a lot of those things have come come full circle and and they're here. Uh, we have them, you know, it's, it's been pretty cool to see that all come together. So it taught me a lot. I mean, for the young coaches out there, man, just don't be afraid to dream. You're going to have a lot of administrators that say how I listened to Andy Stanley podcast one Mm -hmm. time and he said, we shouldn't be saying how as leaders, we should be saying, wow. And never say, never say never. No, fantastic. kind of been a
1: mantra for me. Yeah, absolutely. And, And again, you've, you've done a lot in with what you've got in such a short period of time and so let's talk about this year and the present and you know you you mentioned just now that some of the different things that you guys have done in the past but let's talk about this fall and we're smack dab right in the middle of it as this recording is going on and let's talk about player development let's talk about what you guys are doing with the time that you have and the staff that you have so if you don't mind, start off with what does your staff look like? Uh, just how many of you guys do you have helping? What are your time constraints? And then let's jump right into what a typical week looks like.
0: Sure. we. I'm the only full-time coach on staff. We have a, technically a part-time guy who just busts his tail, David Baker. He's our pitching coach. He does most of the recruiting for us in the summertime and in the fall. He does a fantastic job. He's been with me for 11 out of the 13 years. He, he was a player for, for two years, towards lay room and came back as a student assistant and then just kind of stayed on as a volunteer. And he's done everything here except be head coach. So he's my right-hand man and, and he's super valuable. And then after that, we have a volunteer assistant named Bill Sassman. He's a 30-year head coach at a local high school, just retired this past year and, and brings a world of knowledge. He's, he bring that, brings that old-school approach that I think is really important to balance out a, a younger staff. We have a baseball ops guy who actually wants to be an ops guy full time he He's a volunteer ops guy. He just finished his degree last year, and uh Kyle's been doing a fantastic job with travel and and some fundraising and and equipment and all that kind of good stuff that we know some guys hate to do, but there's other guys like him who are passionate about it and then we have I believe it's four student assistants. It's hard to keep track right now. We have so many of them, but they're, those guys are super selfless. They show up, set up equipment before practice, do a lot of our data work in the office, even database work for camps. And they're, I've learned the last 13 years that the guys that work for nothing are probably your most valuable resource and you got to find ways to thank them and keep them involved and keep challenging them as well. Not overwork them, but
1: challenge them. Definitely. Well, let, let's go into what a typical week would look like for your players. And what have you guys decided to, because we we all have different time constraints in the fall. What have you guys decided to spend time on? And if you don't mind, give us a rundown on why you decided to uh, spend time on that.
0: Sure. I think the way baseball is going, is pretty intimidating with all the data, technology, the development process. It seems like you need to have a PhD to be a baseball coach. And, And at first it started pitching and now we're on the hitting and it's intimidating. You know, I've talked to a lot of guys at Division One level and they said, man, I'd just like to be a head coach because I just feel like I'm I'm going to get run out of the game if I don't get a lot more intelligent in this area. And, and and they're partly right because I think that's where baseball is definitely going and has gone. So, you know, long story short here is that we have completely revamped our pitching and hitting philosophies probably in the last three or four years. And it's, an, it's a continuing evolution, but I was always an approach, and we'll start with hitting. I was always an approach-based guy. I mean, we approach, 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 and we still are because I think that's probably one of the four. We look at, from a data aspect, it's probably one of the four areas that we really focus in on is approach and, and game-like batting practice and, mm-hmm. and game-like preparation. But incorporating the technology has been a, a slow but te- and, and tedious uh, process. We got in with Diamond Kinetics a couple of years ago, and I know a lot of guys are blast guys, but it was more Diamond Kinetics was there and, and asked us more than anything. I said, sure, we'll take a look at this. And and it, it's taken probably three years for us to really understand what we're looking at data-wise and how we can actually incorporate into our workouts and correctives and and build swings and, and really develop the individual. We got Soto as well for hitters and you know, the batted ball data combined with the swing sensor data has been crucial sometimes it's it's more so to as coaches knowing what we have a feel for for what we're looking at mm-hmm. they take a negative approach angle for example we, we feel you know we, we can kind of see that the swing path is down or a guy's late and he's hitting the ball really deep in a swing and his approach angle is negative but being able to take that data then and show it to the player has been crucial for us because so many of these guys feel like things are going the right way. But I think what we've done is speed up the development process in terms of we'd always give a guy a year to figure it out and oh man, will he hit 320 and he hit five home runs and we're not going to mess with it. Whereas now uh, with player development, I know I'm going on a tangent here, but with now with player development it, it's given us the opportunity to speed up that clock and start earlier because we can already see what's going on and we can show the player right away what's going on right. from a swing aspect and they buy in quicker because they can tell, man, this, this, this is a problem. This is a swing fall or my movements are flawed. So, but uh, go back to your question. You're talking about a week in the fall and what we're focusing on, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Yeah. So, so taking all that information and then applying it to a practice plan in a week, it's challenging. It's more challenging than ever, especially as a head coach trying to be a hitting guy. We've built in some early work for our hitters and our pitchers. So we're, we really try to to get an hour in the cage each day, uh, an hour in the bullpen each day with groups of four or five. And uh, that's something that Baker, David Baker, our assistant pitching coach incorporated when he took over is instead of having 18 pitchers during batting practice, trying to all get their catch play in at separate times, it's taking four or five and, and starting at one o'clock and giving them, you know, a 45 minute session out there mm-hmm. in our bullpen. And that's that's really, really helped us from a development aspect because the eighteenth guy on our pitching staff is getting just as much love as the as the number one. Right. And I think that's crucial. You just never know. You never know who's gonna turn around and, and revive his career and become a guy with individual attention. So
1: definitely. And I I love the that you are putting individual player development at the forefront of your training. And I think that speaks volumes as to you know, who you are as a coach and, and what you're trying to build and continuing to build, because it's like you mentioned, it's, it's not easy at all, especially being shorthanded, trying to incorporate technology and individual player development plans. It's not easy at all. And I completely, I understand where you're coming from as far as that. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not the head coach, but I understand that aspect of it. And so uh, you, you mentioned, you know, whenever you took over, there were some things that you wanted to change. And a lot of people thought that, you know, it would be a really a tough road to go down. And you mentioned that earlier in the podcast as well. But what what about culture building? Like, how did you change the mindset of what you guys were trying to do at Millersville? And how did you get players to start buying into, hey, we can win here. We may not have a field on our place. We may not have a turf infield yet. Uh, And we may have some different restrictions that are placed upon us, but we can do this. Like, So tell us about that process.
0: We had a tremendous group of players that came in in '07. They were nine and 37, and uh, going nine and 37 is going to create character no matter what. I mean, it, we 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 had a rough year to to say the least, and we opened up. It's funny because we, we lost the national championship a couple of years ago to Nova Southeastern. We opened up with Nova that year and just got obliterated in a three game series, and it was it was eye opening for those guys. We we had four or five of those kids that ended up redshirting. At one point or another in their career, and they, they were on the World Series team that we had in 2011. So I think part of that had, you know, part of that turnaround had to do with the growth of, of those five kids in particular. And one of them is now our athletic director, believe it or not. And I get to work with them and work for them every day. And it, it, that's it's just one of those things that you, you look back and go, is, is this even real? But that's the type of kid that, that I was blessed to be able to work with. Awesome. Talk about a guy that's become an athletic director at the age of 30 and uh doing a fantastic job but you know you look back and you say okay somebody put their foot down at some point and i remember a particular instance where we had a kid named Derek klein who actually got drafted as a pitcher uh, he had a walk-off home run to sweet bloomsburg in 2008 and at the time we were maybe 9 and 20 that year and it just it flipped the switch and and it our guys all of a sudden said we can win like this is possible we need to compete we but we need to go out with the belief every day that we can win baseball games. And, Mm -hmm. and that kind of changed things. That group was not even close to as talented as as the teams that we have now, but they were special from that aspect. They were super, super competitive, but I would say culturally the little things, you know, not parking in staff spaces on campus and using sidewalks and taking your hat off in the building and little things that that show respect to other people uh, that that got our, our maintenance guys on board. And, and, uh, you know, got our athletic director on board uh, and it it got our fundraising people on board and it got our dining hall people on board. And when you get everybody aligned, when the head coach forgets bag lunches for the road trip, I mean, you can call the dining hall up and they can help you out. You know, all of those things are crucial to building a championship program. And it, it starts on the inside with the players, but it's a campus wide effort. And I think that particular group bought into, I don't know why coaches. Making us take our hat off, but if that's what we us to do, we'll do it. And I think it—it—it it, it was just something different that we still shave. We're still old school. We're using lots of technology, but when it comes to our values, I think we're—we're we're an old school group that's we base our culture on service and 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 others. And we're not the centerpiece of campus. We're a part of campus, and we, we're trying to enhance our campus and enhance the people on our campus. And and um, I think when you keep that at at bay or you keep that in the in the in the forefront of what you're doing it's much easier to get people behind your program as well
1: right you're trying to build the the person before the
0: baseball player i love that no doubt about it no doubt about it and that continues i mean our i sit here in the recruiting process and talk to every kid and their family and and i'll tell them that you know i can sit here and tell you on player development and we can talk about technology and and we can go through all the correctives from a pitching aspect that you might be going through. We can break down your, your biomechanics on video and we can go to strength conditioning and talk, talk to our strength conditioning coach for hours on, on how we're going to improve you as a player. But at the end of the day, our values aren't going to change. That's what you're signing up for because we may find something better next week that we're going to, we're going to adapt and, and put into our program from a development aspect. But the values are what, what guys are signing up for and, and that's never going to change as long as I'm here.
1: Well, oh, that's fantastic. And again, it it comes back to everything for me comes back to building a safe environment and building relationships with our players. And they feel safe to to share with us They're They feel safe to ask us questions uh, that that has got to be the baseline. And, and Daniel Coyle talks about that in all great cultures set that first. And and that's <laughs> perfectly what you're saying currently and, and what you're trying to to continue to build on a daily basis and, and something we should all strive to do. But what is what are some different advice that you would go about building relationships with players? And I don't mean this to be in a way of, okay, we have a system to where we're trying to fit all of our players in, and, and this is this is what you have to do to build a relationship with a player. But what are some different ways that you try and build relationships with every player? Because, again, I'm a hitting coach, and, and you, it sounds like you're on the offensive side as well, and there are times that we won't see the POs for a couple of days at a time. And how do we make sure that, we're connecting with every player as much as possible.
0: Sure. I mean, we've got to be intentional about it. And, and, and I know one of the things we talked about prior to is what's something I believe in that other coach, coaches may disagree. And uh, it is coaching relationally. I, I think making it intentional that we are building relationships with, with each and every individual on the team, even though it's a competitive environment. And maybe one of the toughest things we have to do, I, I look at the the scene in Moneyball where they, they have to cut cut a player and you know, they, they purposely don't build relationships because of the tough decisions that they have to make as an organization. And, and I just, it makes me sick to my stomach stomach and, and being a guy that had a very small cup of coffee and pro ball, it was something that drove me early in my career. And I, I hope, hopefully I'm still early in my career here, but but 12 or 13 years ago, it was one of those things that drove me was the lack of information and player development love, so to speak, that was given to the peon bullpen catcher that played on Sunday. That guy, just as much as the first rounder, wants to know what he can do to get better, and he wants to know where he falls on the depth chart. And, sure. and taking you know a two-minute conversation to have with that guy could change his career man, there's a lot of great stories now, player development guys, the, the, the Max Muncie's of the world that have revived their careers and, and become everyday big leaguers and all-stars because mm-hmm. of those conversations that are being had. So back to your question, I mean, I think the personal development with players, it's, it's taking the time to to actually have real conversations with them. And, and I know it, it is exhausting because we want to sit in the office and we got to raise money and we got to plan practice and we got to, look into the latest technology and we got to do accountable activity, you know, accountable related activity hours and do all this stuff for compliance. And there's the camp to run on the weekend and go, it, it never ends. But at the end of the day, I think one of the reasons our program has been successful is we, we have a coaching staff, not just myself that takes the time to open our office door. We've got guys sitting on our couch constantly to the point. Sometimes I got to kick them out because there is time that I got to get work done. But one of our shortstop went away this summer. He played a couple of weeks in California, but then he went to the Hamptons league, won a championship there. And then when they finished up in the Hamptons league, he went to the Northwoods league. And he called me in August when the Northwoods got over and he said, coach, for some reason, the guys that I played with all summer, that this scene that they just don't like who they play for is more evident than ever. And it's not about being friends with our guys, but man, why is it impossible for us as coaches to have a long-term relationship? With our players, I mean, it, it, they should like us. We should be in a, an impact on their lives for for the long haul. And it, it's kind of it's kind of mind blowing to me to think that there are so many college kids out there who just don't enjoy what they do every day. And I, it starts with us having real conversation with them, listening, asking them questions, you know, and just spending time with them.
1: No right, and it's got to be authentic. I think that that our players are fairly large lie detectors and they can tell whenever we're being inauthentic as well and and that and that i hate to hear that for those players and i think that a big part of it comes back to communication and trying to take the time to talk to the the 25th guy and not just your shortstop every day and your your leadoff hitter and and i you know that's something that i've consistently had to work on especially like i mentioned before with like po's or position groups that i don't necessarily work with every day and and so that's that's something I think that we can all strive for is just to better communicate the situation or better try and have a conversation with them about something other than baseball as often as we can because, you know, you never know. Like you said, a kid may turn it around or a kid may be going through something and and having a conversation with with you as the head coach or, or me as, as an assistant coach can help turn it around for them, maybe not on a baseball field, but but off of it. And I think that's, that's huge. And you've also talked about, some different your different assistant coaches and and it sounds like that man they they are grinding it out every day and how do you make their life easier like what are you what are you doing to help them develop as coaches and and take us through your vision for assistance and and helping them to grow to be the best that they can be
0: we've got a fairly small coaching tree to be honest and and i don't know if that's uh that's a positive thing or a negative thing but (laughs) eric Soupley is up at uh, Columbia as a pitching coach. And then one of our other former assistants is actually the, the uh, head assistant at North Carolina state softball. So I was pretty close to ruining a relationship with those, both of those guys. They were, they were the assistant coaches during my first year. And uh, they will tell you that I was the worst staff manager in the history of college baseball. At that point, I was a 25 year old managing a 23 and a 22 year old and trying to figure it all out. But, now the three of us are are actually really really close. We talk all the time. And what I learned from those guys that I'll never forget, Supuli actually came back and uh, he spent a year with us. You know, two or three years later, I think it was 2012. He was here and uh, he was on his way to Wake Forest And another year as a volunteer for Coach Walter down there. But. But uh, Eric said, "You are my boss, and and I and I need you to tell me what to do in certain situations, and I need direction. And that was an enlightening conversation. I'll never forget it. And I just think that as leaders, yeah, we we've we've got to be super clear. People want to follow clarity, and it's almost become a buzzword in our program. But clarity is, is super super important to our staff culture in terms of creating job duties, keeping guys accountable to getting those job duties accomplished, and and." and not being afraid to have a tough conversation when things aren't getting done. I think that's where we grow. And unfortunately, most leaders are afraid to have those conversations, but I don't want to sound like I'm a negative head coach and I'm really hard on our coaching staff, but I think it's, it's really important to to be able to have a closed door conversation with, with younger coaches and say, here's where we need to get better. Here's where we, we need to improve. And and i failed at that over the years. So I'm going to be really honest. And it is really, really tough to, have those real conversations and and not complain about guys behind their back. But, uh, but I think that's, again, being intentional with, with that is important. Talked about challenging guys earlier a little bit, finding the, that magic space where you're taking a volunteer or part-time guy and giving him enough to fill his plate so that he's, he's growing, but also not overworking him to the point where he's not having a good experience and he doesn't want to coach as a result. And that's a that's a hard line to walk for those of us that deal with the true volunteer. Because I know there's a lot of volunteers that get paid fairly well, you know, at the upper level of college baseball, but at our level, we need every person we can to get on board and uh, you know, delegating at different levels, whether it be just a hey, we need to get this database done or you're gonna be in charge of, of all the Rapsodo soto data, both pitching and hitting. That's a huge job for somebody in our program and right. figuring out who's capable and then and then coaching them up and 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 continue to check in on them so that they they know that what they're doing is really important
1: for sure for sure and that and that's something that again it's especially when working with data you could feel like you are swimming at times and and it sounds like you're you're putting guys in the position that best suits their skill set and i love that and i think that that's a that's a great sign of a head coach regardless of what you said about your 25 year old self i think you've made some definite progress which is which is awesome but also you guys have you you mentioned about the hats and you mentioned about not parking in staff parking and so what are some other rules or just standards that you have in your program and you you talked a lot about your first group of guys that just bought in and they they followed you i think that 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 most coaches can trace it back to a group that decided to be selfless and to put their team first and and i love hearing your story about that and so what what are the standards that have continued throughout your program and, and they may change a little bit from year to year but what are kind of your core values your standards or just the the things that the players are looking to to understand how to shape their behavior
0: Oh, we we have four covenants, which came from uh, Brian Kane years ago, and uh, they're selfless and relentless. And I know there's some other programs that actually have those same core values, core covenants. But one of the interesting things that we do as a team, the first week of class every year is go over those those core covenants and first ask, are there any other values that we need to add? and it's it's always brought up some interesting conversation that but to this point, even though we've had opportunity, we haven't changed those values. They've, they've stayed the same. We haven't added any new ones. But from those values, then we we actually take a closer look: what does selfless look like in the classroom, in practice, in the community, and then on the field during competition? And then what does relentless look like in those four areas as well? And there are very consistent things that pop up every year. There's some new ones that come in, and it's it's fluid. It you know it, it changes a little bit every year, but each team takes ownership of those values at that point and here are some of the habits that we display on campus or in summer ball or during community service hours or whatever you may have or obviously in the classroom as well but um to answer your question that that's where those come from It's having those conversations and uh i remember one example was we i forget which book it was but we were trying to build trust i actually believe it was uh was a uh, legacy about okay. the all blacks great. and how, how they wore it. Have you read it, Jonathan?
1: Oh, it's top three all time. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Fantastic read. Well, I got this great idea that we were going to wear our high school jerseys or our favorite team and you know, professional team Jersey on the first bus ride of the year, because we had a lot of new guys. We're still trying to build some trust and and have some conversation and, and uh, get to know each other. And, uh, we had our pictures taken in front of the bus at the first restaurant stop on our way south, and, and we're all wearing these different jerseys. And I had probably 20 texts in the next hour from alumni who saw the picture on, on Instagram and said, wear your collared shirts. And they, they were literally angry that we weren't wearing collared shirts. And it, it, I know there's other programs that wear collared shirts, that wear ties, that get on the road and, and look professional. But I think that our values those habits that are around those values are so deep that it literally fired up our alumni and had them upset about how we looked on the road. And it wasn't, that's not the Marauder way. So, you know, that that's one of them is looking professional on the road. I think our guys walk into the team hotel where other teams are staying, especially during conference tournament regional time. And they, they feel like we're, we're in championship mode and we're not better than other teams, but maybe more prepared. Um, That's the mentality that they have. We still have a shave rule. I know it may not be the most ethical thing, but it's also built some accountability. I mean, I I don't talk about shaving very little anymore, but we've got upperclassmen that will literally turn a guy away at the gate or the clubhouse and say, you need to go take care of that. Look professional, (laughs) which is hard. I mean, that's probably taken 10 years of building that upperclassmen, learning how to keep guys accountable. Cleaning the clubhouse. I mean, that, that's an upperclassman job. We we have upperclassmen that will clean, you know, sweep, vacuum our clubhouse. Again, sweeping the sheds. Coming from Legacy, uh, it's something that we've taken taken uh, into our program from them. We wear sunglasses on the back of the hat, not on the front. We don't cover up our logo. That was an Atlanta Braves thing. Mm-hmm. Just learning how to wear the uniform the right way and, and taking taking pride in that M that we wear every day rather than rather than covering up. So a lot of old school stuff. It's the uh, old school culture mentality that our guys have learned to really love our program and love Millersville.
1: No doubt. And so we've we've talked a lot about, you know, your culture in the fall, and I love uh, designing practice and practice plans and trying to be as efficient as possible. And so whenever you get to the spring, we again, we have another time constraint, which is we have games and we want to be able to. Uh, taking account energy levels and, you know, your guys are going to class, my guys are going to class and trying to take all that into consideration. But what are some different practice plan tips that, that you've found or you can kind of, you can, if you don't mind, you can take us through a, a typical practice, what it looks like and just kind of how how your mind works on how to get what we need to in. And I just, besides the fact of coming to watch you practice, you know, what what would we see and what would kind of stand out?
0: Sure. Well, that's, that individual time is going to start middle of the afternoon and so we'll we'll do we'll have open time in the cage where i'll do my best to be down there and out of the office and escape for a little while with our hitters and that's when we get all the technical stuff out of the way and and our proprioceptive work their field work a lot of the video work will get done then pitchers are the same thing that they're they're out in the bullpen getting their correctives work in. if they have a bullpen that day it's it's typically before practice three o'clock position players will will do their their stretch, warm up, band work, their uh, posterior shoulder work, and and then they'll throw. We'll go through a throwing program. It depends on the day. We try to stretch out the capsule, you know, three or four times a week and then pull down maybe twice a week. Uh, we do a ton of throwing in the fall and the spring from a position player aspect. So throwing program is is daily, but we've changed it a little bit through the years, not to get too deep into the throwing program, but adding some functional throwing at the end, whether it be That's the time catchers are fielding bunts and throwing, throwing to first base, or maybe it's doing some four corner flips with infielders, or maybe it's cuts and relays right at that point. Or we do a thing called outfield square drill where we have all three outfielders are throwing to three different bags at the same time, but, but adding in some functional throwing immediately after our throwing program has been a time saver for us. And then we'll 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 start team practice about three we'll, thirty. We'll probably do five to ten minutes of a skull session. Right now we're we're going back through. Uh, you mentioned Daniel Coyle, but just trying trying to explain myelination a couple of weeks ago to our hitters who who want a quick fix with everything that they're doing offensively. Mm-hmm. And we started going through the the Talent Code and
1: another great one, which is a yeah, fantastic read
0: for individual development. So we've been taking that and breaking it down for about 10 minutes a day, which has been a, a great growth opportunity for, for our staff and our players. Once we finish that, we'll go into uh, probably the most inefficient thing we do, which is team defense. I, I haven't figured out a way where we can go through bunt plays and pickoffs and rundowns and force box and pop-up priority and actually do it in an efficient manner because there are points where we just we need to break some things down and and take 20 to 30 minutes a day and, and really not perfect those plays but I could count every season our season could come down to four or five bump plays that we either execute or we don't so I mean it, they're, they're crucial things and we've got to get done and and it's it's painful sometimes because we all would rather be doing individual hitting work or individual pitching work mm-hmm. or you know working defensively with our catchers or our infielders or outfielders but but it's it's got to get done so so we do it At that point, the pitchers are coming out of the – before the team talk, our pitchers are coming out of the bullpen or the clubhouse, depending on when their individual session was. They'll typically spend an hour and a half. After they get their hour work in the pen each day, they'll have another hour and a half where we'll we'll do team defense and then individual defense They help us out with hitting some fungos. And and then generally, they're done for the day. Um, It's short and sweet. Get your work in, get out. Hitters will stay for BP then. Uh, and I know you we, we probably want to talk about BP in a little bit more depth, but we'll hit for 45 minutes to an hour. I think I might skip individual. Once we get done with team defense, we'll do about 20 to 30 minutes of individual defense. Each each area will have a focus each day. It might be as simple as backhands for infielders as your focus for the day, and we'll have four or five backhand drills. And then one of our staples is square drill. I stole it from Tim Corbin. Visited Vanderbilt in 2011 was enamored with how they they made something as simple as taking four fungos and at the same time and turning it into a competitive environment and it's funny to me because everybody's like oh well if you had if you had 17 staff members and you, know, you, you could chart all of that but what I noticed with them is that coach Corbin follows the rules in terms of practice time and, and who's at practice and who's hitting the fungo and and they were able to accomplish everything with with the same size staff that that we have mm-hmm. so we incorporated square drill it's competitive we everybody's taking fungos they probably get 50 to 100 fungos depending on how long it takes each day and every one of those fungos is charted and you know we have clean glove plays clean throws bobbles throwing errors fielding errors and it gets pretty competitive guys want to get it done pretty clean every day because they want to see their fielding percentages stay at the top of the list and we post those weekly well that's fantastic but uh yeah, it's it's a great, and I'm sure Coach Corves not to throw him under the bus, but I bet he would share it with you. And there, he did a an entire uh, ABCA convention talk on square drill and competitive mm-hmm. defensive practice. But uh, outfielders and catchers as well, getting their individual time in there for about half an hour, and and then we go into uh, batting practice, and that'll last for 45 minutes or so. Every once in a while, I mean, I I'd say probably two to three times a week, we throw a curveball in where we're we're going to do some type of scrimmaging, whether it be a a bunch scrimmage or a two-pitch scrimmage, we do something called just-do scrimmaging, which is a, a competitive situational scrimmage. We'll either do it off a coach pitch or off a pitching machine. And it might be, the theme might be first and thirds, where we'll give you three first and third plays that everybody's got to execute. And they get two pitches to do it on. And, you know, groups of three or four might be their batting practice groups. But we'll go through that, you know, just kind of a mass rep, game speed rep with full defense on situational hitting. where it takes the batting practice where they hit a line drive to right field with a man on second base and nobody out. that's head high where you might advance, but he might not advance, and they don't really think about it because they hit a barrel, and it felt really good, and they just move on to the next swing, and they go, oh, crap. You know what? When I actually put a base runner out there, and I put a defense on the field, that doesn't play. Mm-hmm. It's been great for our guys to play game speed situations. So, but That's kind of how practice runs on a, on a daily basis, and that's, that's the structure. That we have, and I don't think it's more than two and a half to three hours can be just, can just kill your efficiency at practice. I mean, we laugh and say efficiency, but I mean like your, your work is, is meaningless at some point.
1: Right. I, I'm definitely with you. And you mentioned that, uh, that you guys do some different competitive situations as far as square drill and individualization within or in Indie work, essentially. Are there any other competitions that come to mind?
0: Absolutely, I, I could probably go through. We could probably do an entire podcast on on uh, integrating competition into practice and just That's player that. development. But yeah, we we've got a uh, nutrition. We chart our nutrition on my MyFitnessPal, it's a free app, an Under Armour app. Our guys chart it every single day. They they turn their numbers into our uh, our ops guy on Friday mornings in the weight room, and uh, we post it. We we have a Google Drive for the team. I'm not sure if we're supposed to have one or not with our university, but the end of the day, we, we use Google drive for a lot of things and, and we post all of our statistics on Google Drive. So nutrition is one of them and, and everybody's got a, an open link. They can, they can go in and, and see where they stand. And, and you say, how do you compete with nutrition? And, you know, cause some guys have different goals. It's just, they post their goals on their calorie intake and their, and their macros. And it's pretty, pretty easy to see who is, is staying, you know, close to their goals each week, you know, and, and again, there's, there's accountability there and it, Guys know who's working hard, not just on the field, but but in the dining hall as well. And it's a huge staple to what we've done from a body aspect. and we're seeing some guys we had Scout Day yesterday. man, that kid lost thirty pounds or he you know he looks stronger this year, and that's a test to our our nutrition planning. Quality plate appearances, it's old school, I know, but there is still a lot of value in in keeping track of quality plate appearances. You know, Diamond Kinetics, they, they came out with a, a new spreadsheet system where you can compete, um, post the spreadsheet and, and you know, different strokes for different folks. I mean, you got a lot of different guys with different swing planes and, and, and different things. But again, the posting of that information makes it competitive and put a stopwatch on something and guys are going to be driven to, to, to do it faster. And I think anytime you post information, make it public, guys are going to want to do, do a better job. So. We do live defense during batting practice. It's probably more important for our outfielders than, than anything else. But every time they touch a ball on live defense, they get a touch for it. Anytime they dive for a ball, they get a dive. Anytime they, they catch a ball, it's a, it's a put out. So you'll see our outfielders, you get that the power shag going. I know a lot of guys would call it that, but, but again, they're competing. So somebody's sitting there with a chart tallying up how many balls our center fielder catches and touches during during practice. So. Our squad games are all competitive. There's a there's a process oriented goal for each of our squad games, whether it be hard hit balls on Soto or strikes or even count strikes for our pitchers. There's there's always a there's always some type of point system that's put in for for squad games that makes it makes it competitive. Obviously, all the pull down stuff, all of our velo stuff that we're starting to get into. Once we get our guys moving the way we want to move on the mound, um, we start getting into more of the competitive velocity programming that, that we're doing for, for, I'd say the majority of our pitchers. Again, that that's pretty easy. I mean, that, how hard do you throw? I mean, who, who doesn't enjoy throwing the ball hard as a competition, but the latest stuff, I mean, the hitting stuff is, it's awesome. There's a lot of programs out there doing it. I know Iowa has done a fantastic job. I've read a bunch of their stuff, mm-hmm. um, but, but creating a competitive environment, not just with exit velocity, but one that we like is the ladder drill for bat, bat skills, guys that can have trouble controlling their barrel figuring out a way to hit a 10 degree line drive and then figure out a way to hit a 20 degree line drive and then figure out a way to hit a 30 degree line drive those are, are fantastic drills if you have the, the means to to get some
1: batted ball data on your guys so sure, and
0: lots it, and, and lots to talk about <laughs> yeah no <laughs> doubt. What. I, I,
1: I love all of that and and i i'm I maybe stealing the nutrition thing because we have got guys that weigh 130 pounds and you're like guys the bat's swinging you and and uh, and you'll say, Hey, are you trying to gain weight? And they'll be like, Yeah. And I'm like, Are you tracking your calories? Like, no. And I'm like, then you're not trying to gain weight. So I don't I don't want to hear it. But anyway, so uh with the ladder drill, so for our listeners who want to do something similar, we do like ground ball, line drive, fly ball, fly ball, ground ball, mm-hmm. or fly ball, line drive, ground ball, just as as a similar aspect of okay, can you control the barrel? Can you can you manipulate the ball where you want it to go based on on your bat plane? And and so that's I love the the technical aspect of what you're doing with the different degrees, but also it's that it could be a simplified version if we don't have a rep soda or flight scope or track man, no or doubt. Like that, and so let, let's go ahead and, and knock out some quick hitters real quick. You gave us some great competitions, sure. which which I uh, am looking forward to implementing. But if you could go back and give your first year self some advice, what would that be? Oh, my first year advice, yeah, as a head coach, not not as an assistant. Yeah, so you- let me let me clarify.
0: I think coming out of an organization like Atlanta at the time and not spending a whole lot of time in the organization, but, but coming out of an organization that was a consistent winner, one thing that I would, I would go back and look at that I didn't know it all. And it probably took a world series trip and then a trip into a really tough season in 2012 for, for it to smack me square in the face after 2011, I thought, man, I I'm, I'm rolling baby. I'll probably be coaching the sec in a couple of years. And I really didn't have any clue what I was doing even through that World Series year. And, and, and I think that has pushed me to the point where we even added a value for our coaches and we don't need to get in our, all of our coaching values. But our one of the biggest value and sometimes it's a blessing and a curse is make it better. It's just simple. Make it better. And it, it's allowed us to have humility within our coaching staff to, to just admit that we don't know what the heck we're doing most of the time. And that that one single value, those three little words, make it better, has drastically changed everything that, that we do and, and with the attitude that we do it with. It, we just don't know what we're doing. Um, and it's okay sometimes to admit that you don't know what the heck you're doing um, because that's really where the magic happens and where growth occurs.
1: That's really good. And I think it goes back to, instead of griping about it, do something about it. <laughs> and, and we as coaches, we, we can always find things to gripe about. And I, I love that, make it better. Again, I consider that one stolen. And so a guy being a lifelong learner, and, and you've talked about some different books that you loved, and again, it's great uh, great books as far as legacy and talent code and, and culture code. So if our listeners haven't read either of those three, those would be great places to start. But what's something that you've learned lately that's gotten you really excited?
0: Oh man. I ran into Eugene Bleeker, who's at 108 in California. I ran into him at uh, Perfect Game, the WWBA, a couple of years back. He spent about two hours with me just talking, hitting. We were watching a ball game. I probably missed five recruits that we should have been on that day, but I was infatuated with the information he was throwing at me. I just read his book, Old School versus New School. I've read it twice now, and there's so much information in there that it just blew me away. I, I don't even know where to start. I was just again blown away by the amount of information that was in that book. A lot of it's theory, but you know, I was talking to, to bleak the other day and I was watching our field hockey team play and uh, reciprocal movements with the body. I'm seeing it everywhere now. I can't stop seeing it. So that, that's been a, that's been something that has just completely changed the way I see our hitters. And, uh, I would recommend that book and I would recommend diving into some of his theories, uh, Head first, it's a fantastic read. Old school versus new school. He does a great job of combining it. Why baseball coaches have been right through 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 the years, but now we may just have have the data to to back up some of the theories that were used going back to even the twenties. Mm-hmm. So, great read.
1: Perfect, perfect. This was probably one of my favorite ones, and this is something that that we can steal from you and implement tomorrow if possible. So, say that that you uh, sent out a a text to let's say your seniors, and you said, "Hey, you guys are running practice tomorrow. What are we doing? What would they want to do? What what is something that that's fun for them? That if you showed up to practice tomorrow and let them run practice, what would they want to do?"
0: Man, this sounds arrogant, but I hope they'd run practice the same way. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I don't. I think the competitive side would hopefully be there. But picking some things out that that we already mentioned in the podcast about competition, I know that they would take square drill. I think that that again, Corbs allowing us to steal that just change the way we play defense and and go about practice every day. It's taken time, but using high velocity pitching machines and challenging breaking balls at practice, if we have tried that 10 years ago, hitting was all about, I want to feel good, but I think challenging those guys, I I think we would probably see a lot of pitching machine use is, is as big of a pain as it is to set up a 200 pound hack attack every day or two or three of them. I think you'd see that, but but overall, one of my biggest theories is, is making practice fun. I want our guys to show up and enjoy practice, have it be one of the best parts of their days. And I think that our coaching staff does a good job at setting a standard for a high level of, of focus at practice, but also being able to laugh and, and have a good time out there. That the guys don't feel like that you know, they have to be tight to be focused. Right. And and I would like to think that as they become coaches themselves or go on to bigger and better things that they can add that part of our culture into what they do.
1: Fantastic. So give us a three thing rundown. So if we, if we came and watched you, you've talked a a lot of really about practice, but again, it's, it's what, what are three things that you are usually doing or saying, or just kind of give us a look and a feel of, of what three things we would notice if we came and watched you practice. And I'm guessing one of them may be competitiveness, but I'm going to take that one away from you. You can't use that one.
0: I would say, three things that would stand out that we that you would notice about practice hopefully unbelievable communication and not just between coaches and players but players and players and pop-up priority is the easiest one but but consistent communication in terms of I got it I got it and I think that there's I think that's one thing again I keep going back to Vanderbilt obviously that was an influential week for me in 2011 sure seeing those guys at a high level in the SEC go about their business with Amazing communication was something that took my breath away. I was like, wow, you know, I think that's what we, we need to have. And uh gets taken for granted, but those are things that win games. This is great communication wins games. I think also, again, that, that looseness about our practice where we're highly productive, but we're not in guys' faces screaming and yelling all the time. And I don't know mm-hmm. if there's another way to put that, but the intensity that some coaches bring to the table actually takes away from the enjoyment of practice. And I think that the players going out and wanting, having, having the motivation to go out to practice every day and want to get better is, is, uh, can be directly impacted with our attitude and how we go about practice Mm -hmm. and the energy that we bring. So, then the third thing is that we didn't talk about this one structure that we run. We call it regional practice where, you know, you show up for regional and you get 50 minutes or you get an hour on a field or you get 45 minutes on a field and what, as we went to more and more regionals, and we planned out that single practice, we realized, man, that was productive. You know, we we got four team defenses in in eight minutes, and it actually worked. And our guys were really focused. So, trying to find ways like that to to shorten practice some days where we feel like our players are walking away going, "Hey, we got a lot out of that, and we didn't spend a lot of time at the field." Sure, has been a, a staple for us. Finding a way to get the most out of our guys each day is is a key. Now, go back to that individual development. There aren't quick fixes when you're changing motor patterns that have been going on since a kid was seven years old and his dad told him to squish the bug. Sure, Those things take time. But in terms of putting 36 guys on a field and trying to make a practice productive for each one of those guys and get better as a program, it it can be done in much shorter time periods than, than a lot of guys try to go out of five I mean there's a lot of programs I'm sure that are breaking NCAA rules of practice time it just doesn't need to be done I I, I always think that we can shorten that stuff up more than anything
1: I love that and again it's kids attention spans are, are shorter than they've ever been and, and I love the generation that we get to work with but that's something that that is proven to be true and and, and something that that we always need to keep conscious of and something that goes back to uh, some football practice that, practices with periodization and, and having something switch every five to 10 minutes. I, I like that model. And, and I love that, that you're talking about shortening and and cutting things out and making them more efficient to get more time to get more done in a shorter period of time. Uh, but final final quick hitter, what are some of your favorite books and resources? And to sum up a couple that we've talked about, you've talked about Legacy by James Kerr, you've talked about Talent Code and Culture Code with Daniel Coyle. You talked about uh, Eugene Bleeker's book. Uh, old school versus new school. And is there any other ones that that come to mind?
0: Oh, man, I'll walk through my bookshelf here. I've read some of the MedCast stuff. I think they're great for teams. Mm -hmm. I think uh, college kids really dig into the Chop Wood, Carry Water, Transformational Leadership. I know he's got a handful of others. Anything you can read on John Wooden, his stuff is timeless. Um, Wooden on Leadership was a fantastic read. It was a game changer for me. Mm -hmm. Let me see here multipliers that was a big part I I spoke to the abca a couple of years ago and multipliers was a big one for me compound effect just fantastic read um Darren Hardy compound effect I think it's compound effect is always in effect um okay. if you haven't read it another great read for for this generation as well one I read this past winter Brendan Burchard's high performance habits okay game changer for the way I, I go about my daily living and uh I'm sure there's more I love to read. I think that's something if I went back to my twenty year old self and said, "The heck are you doing? You could be reading a book right now' It'd be something i would I would smack my twenty year old self with and say, "Start reading more often
1: <laughs> Would't we all <laughs> uh, now a couple of those are, are great that i that i've gotten to dig into and and I'll, I'll have to pick up the high performance habits book but if our if our listeners you know they, they want to get in touch with you which i'm sure they will because you' you've covered so much great stuff today and, and so many practical ideas what would be the best way to get in touch with you
0: sure my my twitter handle is at coach Sheehan, and then
1: uh you can email me at jsheehan at millersville.edu Well, perfect. Well, John, I I appreciate your time and, and I loved our conversation. And again, you're, you're doing a fantastic job at, at Millersville and, and you can, you can tell you have a passion for your players. You can tell you have a a passion for player development. And I mean, if you've, I knew you were going to be a perfect fit for the show, just because the short interactions that we've had, that has definitely come across. But is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go?
0: I would say continue to hammer the podcast,
1: uh, of the (laughs) curves got some great great
0: guests the last last couple of years here and, and check it out and i appreciate anybody who took the time to actually listen to what i had to say and, and i know johnson's talked about stealing a lot of stuff but obviously that's how we we go about our business that creative guys are are hard to find but uh don't be afraid to reach out and i'd be happy to help you out with anything i possibly can to grow your program
1: Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.